This is Christ the Center, episode 46. Today we speak with Phil Riken about Thomas Boston's human nature in its fourfold state. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today Jim Cassidy, who is pastor at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Nick Batzig, who is interim pastor at Christ the King PCA in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. And our guest this afternoon is Dr. Philip G. Riken, who is senior minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, gentlemen. All right, Camden. Well, today we're going to be speaking about Thomas Boston, focusing on his book, uh, Humanity in Its Fourfold State. Uh, Dr. Riken has written a dissertation entitled Thomas Boston as Preacher of the Fourfold State. Nick, would you like to start us off? All right. Um, Phil, you told me once that this book was the most published Christian book in the century. Is that correct? I might have that wrong. But in the, yeah. was it the 19th century? Yeah, no, that would have been in the uh, the 18th century. It's interesting because that's the period of the Scottish Enlightenment, and so there would be other other books by David Hume, for example, or Thomas Reed that would be much more well known today, particularly in philosophical circles. But actually, by far, the most widely published and widely read Scottish book of the 18th century was by Thomas Boston. It was Human Nature in its fourfold state. And um, there were dozens and dozens of editions in Scotland, but also in England, uh, in the United States, uh, more than a hundred editions published during, uh, during the 18th century. Could you tell us um, why you were so interested in doing a dissertation on this particular book? Yeah, it's a, an interesting story, uh, at least to me anyway. I, I had uh, first encountered Thomas Boston in a church history class at Westminster Theological Seminary. And um, it was actually, I encountered it in a class on uh, on the early church fathers in a lecture on Augustine. And Augustine made a distinction between the the operation of grace and the situation of humanity before and after the fall. And the Will Barker, who was lecturing, just commented on the later development of that idea in uh, in Thomas Boston in his fourfold state, the distinction he made between the situation of Adam and Eve uh, before the fall in their created innocence after the fall in their um, miserable and uh, sinful condition then, and then um, a third state of humanity is humanity under grace um, in, with the work of, of Christ in the life of a believer, and then finally uh, our eternal condition in which we will be unable to sin, such will be our perfection. And so he was working out th- those four states um, in in the course of his lecture. So that was the first time that I was uh, encountered Thomas Boston. So I had just a just a little bit of a familiarity with Thomas Boston as a Scottish uh, theologian, pastor, preacher. And um, when, I, when I came to my last year of seminary, I was very actively thinking about doing further work. Um, felt that for just for the stewardship of, of the gifts that the Lord had given to me, that I, it was important for me to get further education as part of my preparation for pastoral ministry. And I had an, uh, an interest in, in studying in Great Britain, particularly because I had spent uh, four summers there growing up. And so I was really gravitating towards the topic in church history and probably something in, in some English or Scottish uh, theologian, but um, I really, I really didn't know where to turn as far as a specific topic. And it was coming up to the time when I needed to get applications in, apply for scholarships, and so forth. And I, I realized I really had no idea what what direction to go. So I had spent a little time just poking around in the library, and I I sat down for a while just to pray about it and say, Lord, I, I'm really not sure, you know, what I should do. But I, I, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to need a good topic and. If, if you would please just provide 
some direction for that, and I, I went about some other work, and within the next hour, the thought popped into my mind, what about doing something on Thomas Boston? I mean, he's a Scottish theologian. Might he be a suitable subject for doctoral work? And so I got up and just did some poking around in the library, and it was very exciting, really, from the very beginning what I found, because Thomas Boston's complete works run to 12 long, closely printed volumes, and there's just a lot of material to work with, a lot of sermons through passages all through the Bible, um, major works on the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, uh, two volumes of expositions of the shorter catechism, uh, this very well-known book that you've alluded to, Nick, uh, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, uh, one full volume of his spiritual memoirs, a kind of autobiography, uh, just a lot of material with a lot of variety, theologically, biblically, practically. And um, I quickly discovered as well that, that relatively little scholarly work had been done on Thomas Boston and nothing at all on his fourfold state. So it, it very quickly commended itself as uh, a suitable topic and as uh, potentially a, a rewarding one and also a good one um, really for somebody interested in, in becoming a pastor. Well, it is a phenomenal theological work. I remember uh, I picked up a copy after Banner of Truth had republished it, and I remember when I was reading through the section on the state of innocence, man in the state of innocence, that Boston had basically asked the question, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil off limits? And Boston essentially says, you know, God had created Adam as his vicegerent of the lower world, that he had given all things, um, uh, he had put all things in dominion under Adam, but so that Adam would know that God was the creator and that Adam was still the creature, that man was still the creature, there had to be some visible uh, limitation. And so God, you know, puts this tree. Um, he, he puts his probation on this tree. And I, I thought that was really profound. I, I don't think that you read that in a lot of, um, you don't read that in a lot of places. You, uh, Jonathan Edwards had said that this book made, and I'm paraphrasing, but this book proved that Boston was a theologian. You know, So I'm wondering, who do you think Boston was most building on? Because that's something I don't know. And in your studies, what did you find that, who was he resting on um, for a lot of his theological thoughts? Yeah, um, to quote Edwards di directly, he said that Boston was, quote-unquote, a truly great divine. So that's uh, that's pretty high praise from uh, somebody who was himself a truly great divine, and and Boston had us had that reputation not just with Edwards but with John Wesley, with George Whitfield. Um, he was a very well known figure during the period of the Great Awakening, um, often commended um, as as someone to read if you're getting serious about spiritual things or have come to Christ and are seeking to grow in the faith. Uh, that's the kind of reputation that Thomas Boston had. I, I don't know if he had the um, specific source that Boston would have been building on for that particular um, thought about why it was that God put this probation uh, on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Nick. But as a general comment, Thomas Boston really represents a synthesis of Reformation and post-Reformation theology, and post-Reformation would include the Continental Reformers as well as the the Puritans of of England, and then the the Presbyterians of Scotland. I mean, you couldn't really call Purit, uh, Thomas Boston a Puritan in in one historical sense of the term. But the Scottish Presbyterians had a strong affinity for for a lot of the things that Puritanism represented. So you, I, I kind of think of him as a as a Scottish Puritan, um, and his theology really came from the extensive reading that he did. Um, and one of the things I tried to do in my doctoral work was get my hands on everything that I knew Thomas Boston had read, and it's an interesting collection of things. He he himself lamented how small his own library was. I mean, just a, a shelf or two of books was all that he was able to afford or get his hands on. But um, 
there was a lot of borrowing back and forth between ministers' libraries. So, um, you know, men like Thomas Boston would have shared their books, and he often commented in his memoirs on things that he had read, or you get references to it in some of the things that he wrote um, as well. And what you find is that he had done some reading in the Church Fathers. He uh, had done a good bit of reading in... um, in Luther certainly was intimately familiar with Calvin's Institutes, had done quite a bit of reading in systematic theologians that came maybe a little bit after uh, after the initial wave of the Reformation. So writers like, uh, like Zonkius, for example, um, Piscator, other continental theologians, and then had read quite a bit of the Puritans. I mean, he had read William Perkins, and he had read... Um, he had read John Preston, and he had read uh, William Ames, and just a lot of uh, a lot of other theologians. And, and what you have in his writings, then, particularly his more theological writings, is a synthesis, really, of the best of Reformation and post-Reformation thought. And you have it usually. Thomas Boston is writing to uneducated audiences. Um, it's it's popular work that he's doing. He does have some scholarly scholarly things that he wrote, but it's mainly, um, you know, theology from the Bible for regular people in church. And he was, I guess, greatly influenced by Edward Fisher's uh, "The Marrow Modern Divinity," which would that have been more of a um, would that have been what he would have derived his his covenant theology, the thoughts that appear in human nature and in covenant of works, covenant of grace volumes? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, Thomas Boston is very closely associated with with the book you've mentioned, The Mirror of Modern Divinity, which uh, which was a, a 17th century work that um, basically was a compilation of a lot of quotations from Luther, particularly, and and some English theologians as well, in addition to that. So that book itself was a kind of synthesis of quotations on particular topics. But I, I would actually say that although Boston is closely associated with that book, because of a, the- a controversy that arose in the Church of Scotland, and and although he certainly, you know, had imbibed strongly some of the themes in that book, particularly the free offer of the gospel that that the gospel is to be offered to everyone, that our doctrine of election uh, does not in any way uh, constrain our offer of the gospel to to every man, woman, and child, um, and some other themes that were. Uh, that were strong in that book. Um, so that book certainly had an influence, but, um, you know, it was only one book among many books that did have a strong influence on on, uh, on Thomas Boston. Another book that had um, a lot of influence on Boston and his theology, that, and, and this is evident in his fourfold state particularly, is a book called The Morning Exercise Methodized. Um, you know, you don't get titles like that anymore, I suppose. <laughs> um, basically, the morning exercise was uh, a kind of a kind of sermon series at St. Giles Church in London by a variety of different leading Puritan pastors, and they preached on um, on various topics in systematic theology, so a sermon on union with Christ, for example, and a sermon on justification, and just just different topics, particularly in soteriology and the Christian life. And it was called the Morning Exercise. Um, that was the name given to the series. Uh, was uh, sermons that were preached in the morning, and it was sort of um, intended for folks from a variety of different churches. Uh, to come get some spiritual refreshment, um, you know, in the morning. But this was the morning exercise methodized, or you might say systematized or compiled into a book. And that was clearly a very influential book on on Thomas Boston as well, informative for his uh, theology on doctrines like the Union, like Union with Christ, for example, and other doctrines. Um. 
you know, Phil, I'm particularly interested in um, Boston's section on the state of nature and how he sets forth depravity. I remember the first time I was reading through human nature, I really got hung up there because it's such a lengthy section. And I remember thinking, man, he's just going on and on and on about how, you know, sinful man is. He has the great illustration of, the, I remember the one in particular where he says, that man who was God's highest created being is now told to go to the school of the ant, the lowest of creation, so to speak, and to learn from him. Um, and you have some interesting things in your dissertation, a- analysis of his preaching of depravity. Could you talk to, to us about that some? Because it seems like pretty relevant to this book. Yeah, let me just make a couple comments. I mean, you, you, just even your brief comments have suggested a couple things that are important to say. For, for folks that have never read Human Nature in its fourfold state, it does have this four-part structure, the state of innocence, the state of nature, the state of grace, and the eternal state, and which incidentally is also uh, a four-part structure that you get in uh, in the Westminster Confession, in the chapter on on the freedom and bondage of the will, on human liberty, um, freedom of the will, um, and the first section is is not very long. The state of the state of innocence, and one of the comments that Thomas Boston makes is, you know, look, the, in the Bible, it's not a very long condition either. I mean, you get the impression that Adam and Eve fell very quickly. You certainly only have just a couple of pages that even describe that created state of innocence. Mm-hmm at least in narrative form. So uh, there's a lot more to say, isn't there, about the state of nature. And by nature, he meant fallen nature, um, the the condition of human beings as we now find them having fallen into sin. And that is, um, it's a very long section of the book, although the section on the eternal state for a variety of reasons is also a very long, long section. And I think one thing it's characterized by is a very thorough description of the fallenness of humanity, what the implications of that are, what it means that we're totally depraved. Um, the, the quotation you mentioned there is, is, I think, very typical of Thomas Boston, because he did tend to use, um, he, he tended not to use very many quotations in his sermons or references to learned scholarly books or to historical events, although he occasionally uh, did those things. But what was more common if he was going to illustrate a truth was to take something that that was from nature, from creation, something that would have been familiar in his uh, rural farming community. So it's um, typical of Boston, I think, to be referring to the ants. He's also, of course, you know, referring to the proverb there. So there's a biblical reference there. Um, but it's also not uncommon for him to make a comparison between human beings and animals uh, with respect to sin, and he noted that that's something that Jesus sometimes does um, in in his teaching as well. And well, I think many people that um, I think when people read human nature in its fourfold state today, they by and large they will not be. Um, familiar with somebody going into as much detail about the doctrine of sin or describing it in as stark terms as Thomas Boston does. Uh, He's strongly committed to emphasizing the the true depravity of humanity, and, and it has a gracious purpose. He's not sort of wallowing in sin just to wallow in it, he, he ultimately wants to magnify the grace of God in the gospel. But if you're really going to get a clear understanding of the grace that God has for us in Christ, uh, you need to have a very clear understanding of uh, what it means to be a fallen, rebellious, sinful human being. And, um, you know, Boston uses pretty much the full biblical resources on the doctrine of sin to lay that out, and there's a lot of material to work with. The Bible says a lot about sin on on virtually every page, and uh, Boston draws a lot of that out in talking about the state of nature. Dr. Riken, um, I just have a question about um, 18th century theology in general, um, because you uh, surely came across a good deal of it in studying Boston. Uh, other than other than Boston and Edwards, let's say, um, I mean, 18th century uh, theology being done, and, and here I'm not talking about 
you know, let's say Whitfield and, and the great preachers of the day, but, but theologians, um, who would you recommend um, if we wanted to study 18th century uh, Orthodox theology? Who would you direct us towards? Um, who, who are good reads? Yeah, thank you for that. I'm, uh, you know, I, I'll, I have a few thoughts on the question, although, um, you know, in, in doing my work on Thomas Boston, I was much more steeped in 16th and 17th century theology, you know, much more so than 18th century. I'm, you know, somewhat familiar with some of Boston's contemporaries. Um, I'll tell you, one author I enjoy a lot is John Willison, who's a Scottish theologian. Some of his books have been reprinted, uh, particularly his writings on... Um, he's got a, a full book on the Catechism. He also has uh, books on the sacraments, uh, very helpful on that topic uh, particularly. So, um, you know, that would be one of the 18th century uh, theologians that, that I would certainly recommend. Um, the Thomas Boston, uh, other contemporaries of his that are often referred to are the Erskins. Their theology was fairly similar to Thomas Boston's, maybe not, um, you know, have, fully having the reputation perhaps that Boston had, but very much um, of the same um, spirit and atmosphere. If uh, if you read those books, um, those are a couple of uh, Scottish theologians, anyway, that quickly come to mind. Um, Phil, I wanted to ask you about the end of the book, and maybe I might jump ahead and come back and ask you something about the state of grace, but um, why is it that, why do you think Boston ends, and I, I don't remember, you probably addressed this in your dissertation, but why does Boston end with the doctrine of hell instead of the doctrine of heaven? That's a question I had reading through it. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting question at a couple different levels. One is, if you go if you go back and and one of the things I do in my dissertation is kind of trace the history of this idea of the fourfold state. It's there in Gus in Augustine, although Augustine um, is really talking about a contrast between two or maybe three different things. He doesn't fully lay out a fourfold state, but his some of his ideas are picked up in the medieval theologians, and then this fourfold structure shows up in Peter Lombard's sentences, and all of the other medieval theologians are really commentating on, on Lombard's sentences or interacting with it, so then it becomes very conventional to look at things in this, in this fourfold structure, at least talking about the freedom and bondage of the will. Uh, Thomas Boston, though, is very innovative in how he uses this structure. One thing is, rather than just using it to talk about the freedom and bondage of the will, he really uses it as a way for talking about the whole Christian life and all of theology. He really gives it to his congregation as a worldview. Um, if you want to understand who you are and where you are in the world, you have to understand how God created the world, how human beings have corrupted that by falling into sin, how God redeems us through through Christ, and then also coming to your question, what is the eternal state? And typically, the eternal state, it, it, you know, as far as I was able to determine uh, before Boston, it, it was when people used that fourfold structure, they were talking and thinking about believers, and so they often referred to the state of glory, and um, they weren't so much tracing what happens to unbelievers, to those who finally reject God. And Boston, um, you know, gives a different structure because he has a lot to say in his final section, not just about heaven, but about, um, about the final judgment, um, you know, kind of the, the last things generally, and included in that um, the, the reality and the eternality of hell. And I guess I don't know, and I'm not sure if I did comment on why he put that last. Um, you might think that um, it would be, you know, maybe more encouraging um, to end with the doctrine of heaven. It certainly was not an afterthought, because the fourfold state went through a, a lengthy history of uh, transmission and production, a couple of editions and so forth. But by the time it was finally published, um, you know, Boston had worked over the whole thing very carefully. It wasn't exactly the order um, that, that he had intended. And just the main thing I would say in answer to your question, Nick, is that 
it was very important to him for people to know what was really at stake in their decision for or against Christ. And I think this is characteristic of Puritan teaching generally, and certainly true of Thomas Boston, that he wanted to give a very plain-spoken treatment of the biblical doctrine of, of hell. Uh, another thing to say about that is that in uh, for each of the four states of humanity, um, Boston reduced things to a sort of doctrinal proposition and took one text as his main text um, to kind of, um, you know, give a focus to, uh, to the teaching that he was giving. And um, the doctrine that he gave to this last section of the fourfold state was simply that all must die. And he wanted really to probe into that term, all, and that obviously included not just believers, but unbelievers. I think he felt as a matter of logic and of consistency and of completeness that in talking about the realities of death that everyone must face, that, that he would also talk about the final estate of unbelievers. And, and, and so he goes, does go into uh, you know, fairly extensive detail on, on the doctrine of hell, and it's very clear that the purpose of that is a pastoral purpose and an evangelistic purpose and an apologetic purpose mm-hmm. um, to, uh, to make it clear to people that uh, why it was that their decision for or against Christ was not simply a matter of what they did in this life, but had eternal consequences. Um, he he just wanted to make that as clear as he possibly could. One of the things he does is he vindicates the justice of God uh, in the doctrine of hell. But you know, as he comes uh, as he comes to the close of his preaching on hell, I think he comes to a very uh, typical place for him that's characteristic of his theology. If I could read just a just a very brief section, um, and he says this: the terrors of hell, as well as the joys of heaven, are set before you. And then he explains why: to stir you up to a cordial receiving of Christ with all His salvation, and to incline you under the way of faith and holiness in which alone you can escape the everlasting fire. Mm. And, um, and that's typical of Boston, I say, partly because he's talking both about, um, about sin and grace, but also because he is offering Christ to people. Um, and, and so frequently in his writings, he comes back to Isaiah 55 and to Revelation 22 and to the invitation uh, that Christ gives there, whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. Um, And in that connection also, um, I think this is just a very good short statement that explains what Boston was trying to accomplish in his teaching on hell. He described it as an awful subject, but necessary. Um, I think that's a very good short description. It is an awful subject, but it's a necessary subject because... Uh, the salvation of men and women depends upon it, and um, and Boston certainly did not hold back from from proclaiming the whole counsel of God, uh, including the judgment of God. It strikes me, Doctor Reichen, how um, when we water down, uh, as it were, the doctrine of hell, or we avoid it altogether, how in many ways, ironically enough, the church is giving up uh, one of its greatest tools for evangelism. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there is a danger of a preoccupation with hell or an overemphasis on it. I think um, that was sometimes true of Puritan theology and, and perhaps an accusation that could be made of Thomas Boston. If you look at the proportion of time that the Bible spends talking about hell specifically, it's not a great amount of time, but it is really always in the background of everything that the Bible says about the justice and judgment of God. And um, if, if all we are presenting to people is that, you know, um, 
Christianity is a more wholesome or happier way to live, that's really not going to get anywhere with people apologetically, because oftentimes when we come to Christ, we go through some greater difficulties and, you know, suffer as much or more as anyone does. Um, The great hope of the believer is eternal life with Christ, and that is in the Bible set over against the reality of God's wrath and and justice. And... um, you know, why is it that so often people scarcely even see their need of salvation at all? They they don't have an understanding at all of what they would be saved from. And the doctrine of hell is uh, is a critical part of that proclamation. You, Dr. Riken, you had said that you went off to uh, do your doctoral studies and, and, and targeted uh – uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but uh, looked at Boston as a uh, a good resource to study for furthering your training for pastoral ministry. How, how have you, um, in your understanding and reading of uh, human nature and its fourfold state, how has that worked out practically in your ministry as a pastor, um, particularly as you do pastoral counseling uh, with folks and, and try to help them with their with their spiritual struggles? Yeah, so the the influence or the the role that that's played, um, you know, isn't so much in particular insights from the fourfold state, but more so generally from just the, you know, the reading and study that I did generally. And and there are a number of, I think, important things. One is, I think, things that I learned just from Thomas Boston's approach to pastoral ministry. He was very hardworking. Uh, he put a very high priority on personal ministry to people in addition to his very careful study of the Word. I mean, he was a scholarly man, probably an introvert by nature, um, put a, you know, really paid his dues in terms of preparing to preach, studying well, reading, writing, uh, even his, um, you know, even the fact that we have his collected works, he, um, he really found early on in his ministry that he was much more effective in preaching if he wrote out his sermons in full, which he considered at times to be a very great burden. Uh, you know, he, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't writing on his power book. He was, um, you know, writing everything out by hand. Um, and, and yet, in the long run, it's been a great gift to the Church because it's meant that his complete works are available. Um, so just the, the seriousness that he, with which he took his his preaching ministry and time for preparation, and equally with that, the strong commitment he had to personal ministry in his parish, um, you know, a weekly small group gathering with people who live very close to him for talking about theology and studying the scriptures, uh, traveling around his parish by horseback, trying to get into the home of every member of his parish at least twice annually, um, just a strong dedication to the personal dimension of pastoral ministry. Another thing uh, very characteristic of Thomas Boston, which I have, um, you know, has been important for me, some, an example that I've seen that I want to aspire to is, although he was caught up in several controversial matters during his time as a pastor, and although he was a man of strong conviction who really did not back down from engaging those theological issues, he tried to do so in a way that um, really communicated the grace of his Savior to the extent that he was admired by possibly nearly as much by people who disagreed with him on things as he was by people who agreed with him, um, that he brought in, in... some of the people that commented on him after he died and tried to capture what he was like um, said, look, nobody was more zealous for doctrinal purity, but at the same time, nobody worked harder for spiritual unity and for a brotherly spirit in the life of the church. Um, I think anybody that's been disappointed at times in theological controversy, disappointed either by the cowardice of people who were not ready to engage issues that needed to be engaged, or, on the other hand, by people who did so in such an unattractive and abrasive way that it really discredited the gospel. I think you can see, if you've had any taste of that at all, you can see the value of um, you know, the kind of approach, the kind of character, the kind of reputation that, uh, that Thomas Boston had. Another thing that I think has been um, 
helpful for me. I think if people today, um, you know, read Thomas Boston's writings, they would not say, oh, this is really easy reading. Uh, <laughs> they would say, wow, this is very substantive, and I need to work hard to uh, think through this. And, and you know, it, it may be the kind of writing that's uh, better taken in smaller doses um, for many folks. But the, the truth is, Thomas Boston was trying to do things that would make his teaching accessible to common people, and and it was. And he had a very good grew to have a very good reputation in his own parish. Um, you know, using analogies that people could understand, stick, stick, uh, sticking close to the scriptures, um, and even the fourfold state with just its big fourfold structure. And he, you know, preached through that over the course of a year and a half, if memory serves, uh, more than a year for sure. Uh, taking a leisurely time, making sure people really understood the basic concepts, and then that was um, a uh, a reference point for his congregation, something that they really remembered and could use as a way of uh, diagnosing their own spiritual condition, making sense of their world, of the frustrations of life, of, of the work of the Church. There's an interesting uh, anecdote that maybe gives you a little glimpse into what the community was like, um, after Boston had died, um, I think his immediate successor was out kind of in the field near the manse. And in, in those days, I mean, you know, pastors worked pretty hard. They, that included, you know, having to do some farming things just to make ends meet. Uh, it was a very primitive, simple existence. And, and incidentally, I mean, there were at least two major famines during the years of Boston's ministry. It was a very difficult time for people. And, uh, but anyway, this pastor was out raking hay together or something, and um, one, of the, one of the women in the village somewhat caustically remarked, well, you know, rake as long as you like. You'll never rake together another fourfold state, um, which... Uh, Kind of, you know, it's kind of thing I suppose ministers go through when they're succeeding someone else sometimes. But um, it it showed that uh, even a um, even a common person in the village was aware of what the ministry of Thomas Boston had meant, and that was still kind of a reference point in the years after he died. Huh. I had read somewhere that uh, his labors were very difficult. The first, it, it it took him several years to administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Is that correct? Well, uh, I don't. I'm not sure if I remember the details on that. I mean, one thing is, the he was in. I mean, even today, if you go to the the parish church in Ettrick, which was Boston's main charge, mm-hmm. it's a very remote area, okay. even today. So, if you travel there today, it's not hard to imagine just you know what what kind of a back country it was in those days. But the first. Uh, you know, he was assigned to this per- parish. He accepted the call. His first sermon there, there were only seven people there. Um, that's not very encouraging. I mean, you, you'd be hard-pressed to think of any pastoral situation anywhere where you start with just seven people, and uh, it's easy to, you know, feel like you've got an important calling. But he dedicated himself and devoted himself to that. Of course, in those days, communion would have been celebrated very infrequently, uh, usually on an annual basis, and usually, you know, a bunch of churches or a region coming together for a communion season. It's often been said that that's really the start. That pattern of coming together for a week of communion services is one of the things that set a kind of spiritual pattern that eventually led to um, evangelistic practices like revival meetings and so forth, and this kind of pattern developed. But in any case, it was... Um, it was infrequent to have these communion seasons. Boston would have been invited to have communion in various other places, would have been eventually come to have been a, a preacher, someone in demand for those kinds of things. Um, and at his last communion season in his own parish, there were nearly 800 people who mm. were examined for communion by their elders. That would have been part of this week-long practice and who received uh, the sacrament, and that wouldn't have been the number for sort of weekly church attendance in his own parish. We actually don't know what that attendance would have been. Could have been more than a hundred. Uh, I'd be surprised if it was more than two hundred on a regular basis. Although maybe the sanctuary could just about hold that. 
But in any case, um, I mean, he noted with gratitude to God the contrast between how he began in ministry with just a small group and um, and then what a very large group, um, you know, there was in an encouraging way for one of the, maybe the last communion that he celebrated the last communion season. I, I would just make a comment generally about uh, the Puritan preachers, there there were some exceptions, and by the time you get to Spurgeon, of course, you'd have a notable exception of a pastor who has a, a very, very large congregation. But by and large, the uh, the pastors and theologians we read from the early centuries uh, were in very modestly sized churches, and that's true today. I mean, the average church in the United States has less than 100 members in it. Um, but I think it's instructive to note that whatever the size of the church, you know, whether it's a, a Richard Baxter or a Thomas Boston or whoever it is, there was a, a total commitment and a real seriousness about pastoral ministry that, that whoever was in their parish, this was God's call for their lives, and they, had, um, they, they should approach that pastoral calling with the utmost uh, seriousness. I think Boston, in his experience, although... He had many disappointments and difficulties in life, also had some joys, and I think at the end of his life was able to look back with some satisfaction at what God had enabled him to do uh, over the course of a faithful ministry. Thinking back to colonial America, uh, I'm thinking of Solomon Stoddard and some of his theological developments, like the Halfway Covenant and those sorts of things. Those were a few years before Boston. Did any of that go back over to to Scotland or to England was Boston impacted by any of that, or did he did he uh, deal with any of those developments? Yeah, that's an interesting question that I may not remember the full answer to. There certainly was some trafficking back and forth. There's kind of an international reformed movement, um, you know, and and uh, I mean an interesting example of that would be William Ames, who was in England, but chased out of there for reasons of religious opposition, ended up in Amsterdam. Then, I believe at the end of his life, um, if I'm getting these details totally wrong, some historian will probably correct me, but at the end of his life, his his personal library ended up at Harvard, I think, because Ames was intending to head that direction himself. But that, that kind of thing would not be surprising or unusual. There was some personal correspondence. It took a long time. Uh, but correspondence even between Boston and Edwards. I don't remember Boston commenting on the halfway covenant. Uh, I I for sure don't remember him reading any Stoddard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember what his awareness of that might have been. But that you know, but people were talking about theological issues, um, you know, across across the Atlantic Ocean, or just think of you know, Wesley and Whitfield and some of their travels, um, you know, there's a connection there. It's an international connection. It's not just, um, it's not, it's not simply an isolated thing, but there is correspondence. Phil, you have a, a really helpful section on man in the state of grace, uh, focusing on union with Christ, man in union with Adam, and then in union with Christ, where Boston talks a lot about the branch and the vine. And um, at one point on page 208 in your book, you say, uh, what is new in the fourfold state in comparison with Boston sources is the extent to which union with Christ governs the external structure of soteriology. Could you just tell us just briefly why Boston's uh, work on union with Christ is so important in this work and maybe elsewhere in his writings? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, I I really came to love the doctrine of union with Christ in the course of my seminary studies. And so it was, in one sense, seemed very natural, but it was also very exciting to see the prominence that Boston gave to the doctrine of union with Christ as well. And I think if you, certainly union with Christ is a very important um, theological principle in in Calvin's Institutes, for example. I mean, it's occasionally been argued that it's a central organizing principle for for the uh, Institutes generally. Um, I'm not sure if that works exactly structurally, but in terms of the inner logic of Calvin's thought, I think there's something to that. But what's, what's interesting in Boston is a very explicit 
uh, highlighting and prominence of union with Christ as the central benefit of salvation, and then connecting the various other doctrines of salvation with union with Christ. Uh, Boston would have seen that as kind of, I think, fleshing out some of the lines of thought in the Westminster Standards, for example. Importantly, he viewed justification as the leading benefit of salvation, and if you're going to talk about union with Christ as an organizing principle for soteriology, as far as Boston was concerned, the very first thing that you would talk about was justification, and he's not putting justification in opposition at all with union with Christ, playing them off against one another, but seeing a very close connection there. I think that's important for uh, some discussions taking place in, in regard to uh, the doctrine of justification um, today. Um, yes. And But Boston's very, uh, when he thinks about what it means to be in the state of grace, that is the state that, that comes after uh, the state of nature for the believer in Christ, um, he views that dominantly as being in union with Christ. That's what it means to be in the state of grace. grace. It means to be uh, united, to, united to Christ uh, in his person and, and for all his benefits. Phil, I think most of our listeners, most people who read your books probably are not aware of your dissertation. It's not a cheap book. It's usually about 35 to $40 for a paperback. Um, but I wanted to see wh what you would have to say to people that have never read Boston, um, Fourfold State. How important a work is this, do you think, in historic Christianity for seminarians, for ministers? Often we hear, you know, you, you absolutely must read Calvin's Institutes. Is it a book of, of, you know, really great importance to seminarians and pastors? Yeah, I would call it an important book. Um, when I call it a, a book of great importance, I, I, uh, that would be a uh, word I would be pretty sparing with. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's as important to read Thomas Boston as it is to read, um, read uh, Calvin's Institutes. Uh, that's certainly the case. But I do think that... Thomas Boston's fourfold state, if you look at the history of theology, is one of the most important Puritan writings. And so it would be, I mean, in the Great Awakening, if you ask Jonathan Edwards, um, you know, what should, what should I be reading? Uh, you know, most of the titles on his list would have been Puritan titles, and Thomas Boston would have been in, in the top ten for that. And, and I would put... Uh, Boston uh, in a similar category. You know, there are other, you know, great Puritan books that I like a lot. Um, but of the things that Thomas Boston wrote, The Fourfold State is by far the most influential and, and certainly one of the best and very helpful on a wide range of, of practical and theological topics. I mean, a couple other shorter works of Boston are well worth reading. He's got a shorter treatise called A Soliloquy on the Art of Man-Fishing, which is um, basically his personal testament of the importance of personal evangelism. And that, that's a book he wrote when he was very young. He uh, was no more than 24 at the most when he wrote that. Um, yes. And he's got a, a very helpful um, kind of extended sermon on God's providence and sovereignty called The Crook in the Lot, Yes. which is taken from uh, a verse in Ecclesiastes. Um, you know, uh, don't, don't try to straighten out what God has made crooked. That's, um, you know, the approach that he takes there. He's also got a very interesting and helpful treatise on fasting, which is not a very popular topic today, but it's one of the better things ever written on the subject of fasting, uh, very rich practically and, and theologically. Uh, so there are a variety of different practical things that, that Boston wrote. One of the things I, one of the SEC wrote that I, I find very interesting and have found very helpful, actually, is kind of an unusual essay. It's on the, the history and theology of garments. And uh, basically what he does is a kind of fourfold state of clothing where he talks about, wow. um, you know, Adam and Eve and their created innocence and what the theological implications of their nakedness are in terms of their relationship to God and one another, oh. then our need to cover ourselves um, and, and all the 
biblical theology about that. You know, all our righteousness is like filthy rags and some of those kinds of things. And then um, puts a lot of significance on the fact that Jesus died essentially naked on the cross. Yeah. Uh, that's part of his um, shame-bearing for us. And then the clothing that we have in Christ, the righteousness of Christ with which we're clothed. I mean, obviously, it's a very rich theme for talking about sin and about the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the book, he does something which is really great. He talks about what we'll wear in heaven, and he talks about the white robes in Revelation and the imagery of that. And... um, he he comments that there basically there are five situations in the ancient world where people wore white robes. Uh, I'll see if I can remember them all. Uh, sometimes used for bridal garments, uh, uh, a bride preparing for her groom. Uh, worn by priests in their priestly service at the temple. Worn by slaves at the occasion of their manumission from slavery. Uh, worn by conquering generals uh, after a victory, you know, particularly in the Greek and Roman tradition, and I'm forgetting one, maybe it's obvious, but then he he goes through that and he says, now look, uh, all of these are appropriate for the believer in Christ. We have freedom in Christ, so we're like the slaves that have been freed from their slavery. Um, We are this spotless bride prepared for her groom on, on her great wedding day. And we are part of this conquering army that has won the victory in Christ. And we are set aside, set apart for uh, priestly, holy priestly service in the worship of God. And, um, you know, he just really ends with a crescendo of praise. Um, I, I think, uh, to me, it's just a great writing and a great approach and very memorable. And it shows a fresh, creative theologically informed mind at work, uh, just bringing a healthy theology of salvation to his thinking about everything and and helping people understand the gospel in a fresh way. Um, So I agree with with Jonathan Edwards when he says that Boston was a truly great divine, um, possibly not getting fully the recognition that he deserves, particularly for, you know, working out some thorny problems in covenant theology. Um, But I admire him, you know, for all of that, you know, mainly for his faithfulness in his work as a pastor. And um, for sure, one of the first people that I want to meet in heaven, Thomas Boston. Hmm. We want to thank you very much uh, for your time, Dr. Riken. This has been an excellent discussion. Uh, I want to point everyone back to uh, not only our website, but uh, 10th Presbyterian's website. You can visit 10th.org to get more information. You can listen to some sermons as well as see uh, what's going on down there. I'd like to uh, recommend some books. Uh, Dr. Reichen's written several, including City on a Hill, Art for God's Sake, and a couple commentaries in the Reformed expository uh, series, Galatians and First Timothy. Uh, and you can also visit our website at reformedforum.org where you can get information about our other programs. You can get today's bibliography as well as uh, view a calendar of upcoming events. Well, I'd like to thank uh, our guests for joining us and also I want to thank everyone for listening. And we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>